Well, we're in week three of of the series that I'm calling Kingdom Outpost, as you can see on the screen there. Next week will be our last uh, week to be in this, and it's uh, the, the Sunday that we're celebrating the Reformation. So we'll be talking about the gospel and uh, trying to make that as clear as possible. And so at next week and hope you'll be here. Uh, it would be a great opportunity if you uh, if you have friends who are unbelievers who would be willing to come. It'd be a great opportunity to invite them just because um, we're going to be making the gospel as clear as we can next week. So hopefully, hopefully that'll be a good time and looking forward to that. Uh, but this morning, um, our third message in this series, a topical series called Kingdom Outpost, called What Do We Do? And as we're starting this morning, I want you to imagine uh, that you have a Bible study at your house, a group of people who meet weekly, maybe every Wednesday or Thursday night for the study of God's Word together, a small group of people, maybe 10, 15 people there. I want to ask the question, when does that Bible study change from being a group of people who gather together to study God's word to being a church. What makes the difference between those, those two things? When someone is planting a church, a lot of times they will start as a Bible study. And at some point, it moves from being a Bible study to being a church. And the reason I ask that question is because this morning we want to think about what constitutes a church. What are the key marks or defining features of a church. And it's important for us to think about this question. I would say it's vital for us to consider this question this morning because what we define as the core characteristics of a church, when we define those things, those elements will determine the shape of our ministry. What do we do? Well, the reason we do the things we do is because that's what constitutes the church of Jesus Christ, a local church. Kind of another way to think about this, in school, um, you know, my kids at various times will study the different classifications of animals, right? There's mammals, there's reptiles. What makes something a mammal? What makes something a reptile? I mean, there's different core qualities that these different groups have that define them as one or the other. Now, sometimes they may share similar qualities. Some of the qualities may overlap, but... When grouped together, there are certain characteristics that, when brought together, define something as a mammal and define something else as a reptile. And that's very similar to what we're talking about when we talk about the church. There are certain biblical qualities and characteristics that, when brought together, change a group of people from being a Bible study or a club or a gathering to being the church, a local church of Jesus Christ, where he is the head. The last couple weeks, we've defined the church in this series as as an outpost of the kingdom. Again, you can see that on the screen. And then last week, that was how we started. Last week, we said that the purpose of this outpost of the kingdom is to honor and glorify God, to bring attention to him as we make disciples and as we create followers of Jesus Christ who look like Jesus Christ. That's the goal. We want to make disciples who end up and who are in the process of looking more like Jesus Christ. And so this week, we want to ask the question, how is the church to be organized and run to ensure that that mission will ultimately take place so that God can be glorified and honored? 
How is that accomplished? And when you ask that question, what do we do? How do we run the church? How is it to be organized? The Bible is not silent on these matters. It's not something that's just left up to our imagination. The Bible is actually very clear on what the church is to look like and what constitutes a church. And so there are key elements that transform a Bible study into a church, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. So today we're going to look at four marks of a biblical church, four marks of a biblical church, and the goal is for these four marks to shape our ministry. We think of it, we're going back to the basics and saying, okay, what defines us? And if these things are the core characteristics that set us apart from every other organization in the world, then these are the things that we want to be about and we want to cultivate for the purpose of making disciples in order that God may be glorified. So four marks of a biblical church, and we will start here with biblical preaching. One of the major things that changes a group of people from being a club or a Bible study to being a church is the consistent, faithful preaching of God's word week after week. This is the heart. This is the core. And if you think about it, preaching is an odd thing, isn't it? Maybe you've never thought that way, but Sometimes I feel that way. This is an odd thing that happens week after week, right? Consider what we do on Sunday mornings. You all get up, you get dressed, you come here, I come here, we sit, and you listen to someone, typically me, sometimes others, talk and and speak authoritatively for 40 minutes. And then we sing and then we leave. And the 40 minutes or so of the preaching, we would say, is the climax. It's the centerpiece of our worship time this morning. Now, why is that? Why do we do that? Isn't there something else that we can spend our time doing with this gathering on Sunday morning? Why make preaching the centerpiece of this time? Why preaching? Because God, by his very nature is a God who speaks authoritatively. This act that we gather together and do on Sundays reflects the character of God. This is how God is. He's a God who speaks. One author, this is a book on preaching, starts this way. God speaks and his words are powerful, effective, and creative of reality. The God who speaks is the God who acts through his words. Think about that. God acts by speaking. His words are powerful. He created the world through his words. This is the consistent testimony of your entire Bible. You read scripture and you encounter a God who speaks and who acts through his words. And as you read your Bible and you encounter this God, Humans are supposed to listen to this God and respond appropriately. That is the nature of reality. Obviously, you see this in Genesis 1. God creates by his word. You open to the Psalms, and the Psalms consistently call on us to listen to God and to obey his words, to delight in his law. And his law is that which has been spoken and recorded for us to hear. Think about the entire section of the Bible called the prophets. What's going on there? 
They bring a word from God to his people, and the people are to hear that word and respond appropriately. And then Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospels, and what do we find him doing at the very beginning of his ministry? Preaching, speaking about the kingdom, and calling people to repent and believe in his ministry. I mean, this is laced throughout the Bible because this is the character of God. So preaching is the very, the very most accurate theological method for communicating God's word, for reflecting who God is. I would say preaching, actually the the mode of preaching actually helps us to grasp the nature of God because he is the God who authoritatively speaks And so what you have every Sunday as we gather together is you have someone who has interacted with God's word, who stands up and speaks authoritatively from God's word and proclaims what he has said. And then the call is for you and I to respond appropriately to that. My goal, and probably the reason you come to this church, is because you want to hear God's word explained and expounded so that you can respond. That's the centerpiece of what we do. Now turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this is made very clear by the Apostle Paul to one of his disciples, Timothy. God's words create life and faith in the hearer. God's words are powerful. And so this act of preaching has to be the centerpiece of a biblical church. 2 Timothy Chapter 4. Paul says this in verse 1 I charge you, it's obviously something significant he's about to tell him, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is a key element of church life where we sit under the word of God, listen to the word and listen to the word proclaimed as accurately as possible and as truthfully as possible so that we don't wander off into vain philosophies and myths. A group of people is not a church unless biblical preaching is the centerpiece of what's happening. Another author said it this way, God's word working through God's spirit is God's primary instrument for growing God's church. This is how it happens. And it seems slow at times, and it seems like it's not productive at times, But this is how God means to grow his church. This is the centerpiece. And that brings us to our second mark of a biblical church. Biblical preaching, and then flowing out of that, practicing the ordinances. Now, this may surprise you that this would be a key mark of the church. If preaching, though, is how we come to know the gospel... And the implications of the gospel for our lives, practicing the ordinances is how the gospel is visualized and enacted in the life of the church. Don't underestimate how important the ordinances are. Don't let these get pushed to the side. Now, what do I mean by the ordinances? 
Well, this is in our, our doctrinal statement. And we believe that Jesus Christ instituted two ordinances for the church, for the ongoing life and sustenance of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these two ordinances serve as visible signs of the realities of salvation. They're visible signs of the realities of salvation, and these are vital for the ongoing life of the church. You can't cast these aside and remain a biblical church. Uh, Mark Dever, who writes a lot on the church, said this about the ordinances. Practicing baptism in the Lord's Supper demonstrates obedience to Christ, and we all understand that. We're supposed to do these because Christ obeyed them, but listen to the second part. And they are intended to complement by visible sign and symbol the audible preaching of the gospel. So we know Jesus commanded these things, but let me explain how these two ordinances complement by visible sign and symbol the audible preaching of the gospel. Let's start with baptism here. Baptism by immersion is what we believe, and it is done for believers And it symbolizes or shows a person's initiation into the body of Christ. So think of it this way. Baptism shows initiation, beginning. This is, baptism is a public showcase of an inner reality. It's a way to show people that this is what has happened to me. And as the body witnesses, we can all say and affirm, this is what has happened to me as well. Now, baptism doesn't save you. But sometimes in the New Testament, it's a little uncomfortable how closely baptism is linked with salvation. And it's because it testifies, this symbol, this ordinance testifies to the reality of what has happened in your life. What does it show? What does it symbolize? Baptism by immersion shows that you have been united with Jesus Christ, buried with him in death and raised to walk with him in newness of life. It's for believers, and it shows what has happened, what is an inner reality in my life. That's the first ordinance. The second one is the Lord's Supper, and this is a sign, a symbol, showing the continuation, my participation, my ongoing participation and dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. Baptism shows initiation into the body, and the Lord's Supper shows continuation and ongoing dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. Think about what we do when we eat the Lord's Supper and drink the cup. We eat and drink two acts that are absolutely fundamentally necessary for sustaining physical life. And when we do those things, we are showing that our spiritual life is daily dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. I have to be united to him and connected to him on an ongoing basis for spiritual life to grow and to be sustained. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're showing our ongoing continuation and participation and dependence on the work of Jesus Christ. One author said this about the ordinances. The church is only the church if it declares the gospel to its members and to the world. But we are not only to say the gospel, we are also summoned to see the gospel. And specifically here, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, but he would include baptism in this as well. And the church, in order to be the church, has to practice both 
of these ordinances so that we can see the gospel. And this is why the Lord's Supper is not, it's not just something, an odd ritual that we do once a month. In the Lord's Supper specifically, we are remembering the importance of Christ's death. We are acknowledging our ongoing dependence on his work by eating and drinking, just like we need physical life to be sustained by those things. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're showing our unity with one another as we do this together. And we're anticipating the future time when we will be with Christ for all of eternity. And he makes this very clear. Listen to these words. As Christ institutes the Lord's Supper. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So implicit with our taking of the Lord's Supper is anticipation. I depend on Christ's work now, and I anticipate when I'm with him, and when the kingdom has fully arrived in the future. So these ordinances remind us and publicly declare to one another and to the outside world, they declare our status as kingdom citizens. That's what we're saying as we do these things and that we're awaiting the full arrival of our king and to be fully ushered into his kingdom. So these are not... These are not periphery things that we do. These are wrapped up in the life of the church for very good and biblical reasons. And these two ordinances are absolutely necessary for the ongoing life of the church. So by way of application, if we're doing the Lord's Supper, make every effort to be here. It's important for your spiritual life. It's necessary for your ongoing participation and for your demonstration that you're, you're with the Lord and you're growing in your love and your experience of his goodness and of his grace. So those are the first two, biblical preaching, practicing the ordinances, and then third, qualified leadership. One of the major things that moves a group of people from being a Bible study to being, or from being a club or a gathering to being a church is qualified leadership, the installation of qualified leaders. Now, of course, when you think about the church, the universal church, all the believers who are connected to Christ, who are united to him, there's only one head of the church, right? It's Jesus Christ. And scripture makes that very, very clear. He leads, he guides the universal body. But the universal body of Christ always finds expression in a local church. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm a part of the universal body of Christ. To practice and to live out your faith, we'll talk about this later, but you have to be in a local church living out your connection to Christ and your connection to other believers. And so Christ's headship of the church finds expression in leaders who lead and guide each and every individual local church. And those leaders are given the responsibility to care for, to shepherd, and to guide the local church. Acts 20, 28 is a great passage for this. Paul is departing from the Ephesian elders and he's giving them this amazing last speech about being an elder and being in ministry. And near the end of this, this is what he tells them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, there's a couple of things to notice about this passage. One is that Paul makes it very clear here that the elders who shepherd the church at Ephesus, these individual flocks, that the elders who are given that responsibility are given it by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who installs and places elders in place, church leaders. And you can also notice here they have a task to do to care for the church of God. That is their responsibility, and it is quite a responsibility that they've been given. And then notice what Paul says at the end of this. He drops this little reminder here in for them, which the church, which he obtained with his own blood. What does that tell you about the church? How important is this local gathering of believers? How important is the church of Jesus Christ? It's important enough. It's precious enough to Jesus Christ that he shed his own blood in order to secure life for these people. That is significant. And after dying in order to create the church and call kingdom followers into his church, he leads that church functionally by placing leaders, elders, overseers in charge in order to care for his church. That's why when you see a leadership position described in the New Testament, it's always described with qualifications. Because Jesus isn't going to just hand the leadership of this church over to anyone. He requires that a church is led by qualified leaders. If you, want, if you need to be reminded of these qualifications, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, they're specific character qualifications that are given for those who would care for the bride of Christ. He's not just going to let anybody be responsible for his bride. It's a weighty thing to lead the church. And that's one of the reasons that you see throughout the New Testament very clearly that the church is to be led by a plurality of leaders. Some of the elders are financially supported by the church. Some are not. That's the pattern in the New Testament. But all of the leaders of the church, the elders, the shepherds, guide, care for, and pastor the church that Jesus Christ purchased with his blood. No one man is capable of fulfilling this task, nor should he be. And the New Testament calls for a plurality of qualified leaders. Flip over in your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. Another exhortation to Peter, or, or from an apostle, from Peter Look what he says to the elders of these local churches. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the command. Shepherd the flock of God. Of God. It's his flock. (laughs) It's not yours. It's his. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd, notice there's a chief shepherd, and then there are under shepherds who he places to lead and guide and care for. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So in order to be a church, you have to have qualified, functioning, shepherding leaders who are led by Christ and who give direction and oversight to the church. That's what makes a church a church, this aspect of it. So a biblical church preaches the word, practices the ordinances, and is led by qualified shepherds, qualified leadership. All of those first three give us ministry uh, act, ministry functions, the, the way the church is to be run. But then this last one actually tells us what life in the church looks like. So biblical preaching, practicing the ordinances, qualified leadership. And now here's what a church does amongst itself and to itself. We commit to one another and the world. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So you have to have these first three marks for the structure of the church. But there has to be an internal commitment to one another. And this will show itself in a variety of ways. And I'm going to give you three ways that this commitment will show itself within the church body. All right. First of all, membership in the church. Let's think about this briefly. If the church is, if a local church is an outpost of the kingdom, then the church doesn't, our job is not to make someone a member of the body of Christ. That's not our job, but our job as the church is to affirm someone's membership and to give a visible and public recognition of the reality of that membership. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, it's, it's a little like being a U.S. citizen, right? You're born as a U.S. citizen. The embassy in Germany, if you're visiting Germany, doesn't make you a U.S. citizen. But what they do is they affirm your citizenship and they recognize your citizenship so that you can function as a citizen, so that you get the benefits of being a citizen, the privileges of being a citizen, and so that you know what it means to act like a citizen. And that's the same thing that the local church does. The local church gives visible recognition and public acknowledgement of your citizenship in the kingdom. That's what the church is responsible to do. And so if you think back to that Bible study that we're wondering, how does that Bible study become a church? Well, the first three, preaching, ordinances, you know, all of those things are involved in that Um And then there has to be a level of official commitment to one another. So this is is membership. An official commitment like membership means that you are devoted to this group of people for good and for difficulty. It means I'm aligning myself with this particular outpost of the kingdom, with this group of believers. And it means that we together are going to represent our king as an outpost of the kingdom. Now, once you're committed to one another, then... You begin to function like a church, and that means doing ministry together. So membership, commitment to one another, membership, ministry. Why don't you flip in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I've referred to this passage before with you, but it's a key, key passage to understanding ministry within the body. 
So you commit to one another in membership, almost like getting married. And then you begin to function within that kingdom outpost as a citizen of the kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So we've already talked about qualified leadership, which is given to the church. Now, here's what the qualified leadership is supposed to do. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's our job. That's my job. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. What's the goal? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Last week, we talked about discipleship. We talked about virtue, character formation, becoming like Jesus. That's the goal of ministry. You can see how this is described here. The, The leadership of the church equips the saints for the work of ministry. And the goal of ministry within the body is that every member would grow to maturity. And that maturity means looking like Jesus Christ. It's discipleship. That's the goal of ministry within the church. And we need each other for this. So my, my role is to equip you so that you can help one another to grow to be like Jesus. Now, what, is that, what does that actually look like? How do you actually do that? What is, in other words, what does ministry mean? We use that word all the time. My ministry, I'm doing this ministry. What does it look like? Look down at verse 15. Rather, instead of being tossed about by every wind of doctrine, like children, Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love. That is the essence and the heart of ministry within the local church. Speaking the truths of God's word in love to one another on a consistent basis so that, look at verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ministry is word-based. And ministry is not something that the elders do. The elders equip, of course they function in ministry, but it's not all their job. The elders equip, the leadership of the church equips you so that you function and do the work of ministry. Bethany and I were talking last night that we were so encouraged after the character crawl, everybody just hops in and serves and puts the fellowship hall back together. And, you know, they don't just rely on paid staff to do that, but everybody takes hold of what needs to be done and does the work that needs to be done. And in a small way, that's exactly what we're talking about with helping one another to grow, to look more like Jesus Christ. It's taking responsibility for the person sitting next to you's sanctification and saying, I'm going to be a key part of helping them grow by speaking the truth in love as often as I can. That's one aspect of ministry, but ministry also means that we edify and build one another up by practicing the one another commands given in the New Testament. So it's word-based. We speak the truth 
but we also practice the truth. We live out what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. We're united together in Christ, and so we act like it. And that means doing all the one another commands in the New Testament. We have responsibilities to one another. There's a reason that the church is described as the body of Christ. Because we need one another to function properly. Turn over to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. I want to show you what this looks like here. Look how this is described. Romans 12. Start in verse 3. You're very familiar with verses 1 and 2. Let's start in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, so don't, don't be prideful, don't be arrogant about you and who you are. Verse 4, for as in one body, we have many members, and all the members do not all have the same function. So we... Though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our service or serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So use your gifting to serve And then look at these commands that he gives. Let love, verse 9, be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This is within the context of you being a member of the church of Jesus Christ. These commands. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And he goes on and on in the New Testament over and over again to talk about these one another commands that are given. And these are simply ways that we work out our union with Jesus Christ and with one another. This is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom and to live that out. And the only way to fulfill these commands is to be joined to a local church and to function in that way, to have a place in a group of people where you can actively serve with your gifts and where you can actively love in a genuine way. That's what ministry means. And it's not always comfortable. And it's not always easy. And we don't always all see things the same way. And at times we're going to disagree on matters. But those moments of disagreement are where our commitment to one another and to Jesus Christ is most needed. Because we're a body. And we've been joined together. And that's when our love for one another is most needed. And that's when showing honor, outdoing one another and showing honor is most needed. And that's what it means to be a church. It's membership, commitment to one another, and it's ministry to one another. It's not just coming and sitting on Sunday and listening to the preaching of the word. It's a great start, but it goes far beyond that to actually function as a local church. Lastly, evangelism. 
As we talk about what makes a church a church, the key marks of a church, there's a danger in thinking only internally. What do we do in order to be a proper church, right? I mean, we can get going down that track, but biblically speaking, a church is a church when it fulfills its mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ, of going into all the world. There's so much to do, honestly, in ministry to one another. I get it. There's, there's a lot that needs to be done. We're dealing with relationships with one another. And when all of that happens, we can turn into navel gazers where we're just looking at ourselves and we're not worried about the outside world. But the church is defined as an organization that looks outside of its own walls. Remember, we are a kingdom outpost. We are here certainly for one another, but we're also here as an outpost of the kingdom to go into the culture in which we exist. That's what it means to be a kingdom outpost. We are to bring the good news of our king and his kingdom into the world that we live in. The purpose that we talked about last week is very clear, making disciples. And there's an internal aspect to that, and there certainly is an external aspect to that as well. And if we're not doing that, if we're not intentionally going and making disciples and speaking the gospel and the good news into the world, then we're not living up to what it means to be a church in a biblical sense. I mean, this is evangelism. This is the heart of Christ's mission and commission to his disciples. All of these are necessary. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, we live out these marks. We maintain biblical preaching, practicing the ordinances, qualified leadership. We jump into commitment to one another through membership, ministry, and evangelism. We do all of these things. We take the gospel into the world. And that's what makes us a true kingdom outpost and not just another club or another organization or another group of friends. And the amazing thing about this is, is that this is our privilege and our joy. We are joining into a mission and a movement as a kingdom outpost that is going to be victorious. I mean, you've read Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, where a group is gathered around the throne from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. That's what we're a part of. We, are, we get to be a part of seeing that happen. And that's a privilege and that's a joy. So think about these four marks and then dive into the ministry of the church with both feet so that we can see disciples made and we can see God glorified. And next week we'll talk specifically about that message that we're to take into the world. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you have given us the privilege of being a part of a local church. We're so thankful that we turn from idols to the living God, the true God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer of everything that we see. We're so thankful that that work has been done in our hearts, and we pray that we would jump into ministry to one another and evangelism to the world with both feet so that we can see more disciples made and that Christ will be lifted up and honored to an even greater extent. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.